One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Matt Parker. I'm Steve Mould. I'm Helen Arney, and this is another podcast of Unnecessary Detail. If you're unfamiliar with it, it is, well, it's Unnecessary Detail in podcast form. The unifying theme for this episode is stick. Yes, I'm going to be trying to tie a knot using sticks. I will be finding out why certain things get stuck in my daughter's head. And I will be getting stuck repeatedly. Yep, without any help from us. So I had this advert that I remember as a kid back in the 80s for fairy liquid. And it was like, you know, we're going to compare this fairy liquid to the best rival brand. And look how many more dishes you can clean with a bottle of fairy liquid. Is fairy liquid getting this dish clean versus the rival brand? Press your finger into the dish and pull it down on the plate and it creates this squeaky sound. If you're listening in America, Ajax ran similar adverts where they focused on the squeakiness of the dish. Yeah, I hated those adverts because I really hate that squeaky noise. I'd have to leave the room and switch off because it was like, like nails down a blackboard. It's funny you should say nails down a blackboard because I think it's a similar thing going on. But for me, the story is interesting of how this particular thing makes this particular sound. But first, we need to talk about where does sound come from anyway? Helen, I mean, you're a sound person, so you you know this, but it's caused by things that vibrate, right? Yeah, that's basically it. So, well, it has to vibrate fast enough, right? So like anything that vibrates more than, say, 20 times a second, that's something that we can hear. It's very, very low pitch. We can hear up to something that vibrates 20,000 times a second thereabouts, and that's something that's really high pitch, and you've got all these different pitches in between. So, for example, if you pluck a guitar string that causes the guitar string to move backwards and forwards. And that backwards and forwards motion of the string pushes against the air that's in front of it. So you get these pressure waves traveling through the air. They spread outwards from the string. It's a bit more complicated than that because it's amplified by the body of the guitar, but let's just imagine the string for now. This pressure wave is emanating from the string. It reaches your ears and your ears detect that as sound. But it turns out, actually, if you want to understand how a squeaky clean plate or scraping nails down a blackboard works, a guitar isn't that instructive. Actually, the more instructive instrument would be a violin. The reason it makes more sense to look at violins instead of guitars is because violins work through friction. So friction is the force 
that stops you from sliding two objects together. But importantly, there are two different types of friction. There's static friction. That's the force you feel before anything's moved. So you press two objects together, you try and slide them against each other, and you can't. They won't move. And it's static friction that's stopping you from moving those two objects together. Once you get them moving, it's now kinetic friction. So when they're moving, it's kinetic friction. When they're not moving, it's static friction. The key thing is kinetic friction is lower than static friction. So the way a violin works, and Helen, you're not going to like my simplification because you're a musical person and I'm, you know, just I'm all about the physics at this point. But you rest the bow on the string and then you start to drag the bow across the string. But let's look at this in minute detail. So when you first start to drag the bow across, the string is actually stuck to the bow with static friction. So the bow is actually pulling the string away from equilibrium. And as the string moves further and further away from equilibrium, the force that's trying to restore the string back to equilibrium is getting greater and greater and greater. And eventually, that restoring force is going to overcome static friction. The string is going to become unstuck from the bow. You're basically twanging a string in like 200 words. Yeah? Repeatedly twanging. Yeah. Well, yeah, you are repeatedly... Well, it's a bit like when you pluck a guitar string with your finger, you're hooking your finger over the string, but with a violin bow, it's static friction that's doing the plucking. That makes sense, right, doesn't it? High-speed multi-plucks, yeah. <laughs> so once the string is released, it's experiencing kinetic friction, which is much, much lower in this case. It's essentially a free-moving string. And how fast the string moves is defined by the tension in the string, the mass of the string, all those sorts of things. Once it gets all the way, it's going to travel past equilibrium and it's going to reach the maximum on the other side. And at that point, it gets restuck onto the bow. And then it's being dragged by the bow all the way across and it gets released again from static friction. And so you've got this repeated motion and the physical properties of the string define the resonating frequency of that string. So the frequency you end up with is the natural resonating frequency of that string when you drag the bow across it. And in the case of the A string of a violin, that's 440 times per second. So you've got a violin, it's got an A string, which plays an A, which is vibrating at 440 times a second. You're basically using the bow to repeatedly pluck the string using friction so that it plays the note that it's supposed to be playing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, another way of looking at it is the bow is simply topping up the energy of the string. So whenever this happens, it's called stick slip phenomena. Oh, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> you see stick slip phenomena everywhere. A squeaky door hinge is stick-slip phenomena. Whenever you can hear it, it's because the thing is sticking and slipping at an audible frequency. My favourite example, do you know what the slowest stick-slip is? Or at least the slowest that I know of. Uh, really big sports shoes on a basketball court. <laughs> yeah, so sports <laughs> shoes on a basketball court. Like clown-sized sports shoes <laughs> on a basketball court. I'm not sure that experiment has ever been done. The slowest example is earthquakes. Oh. So most of the time, two continents are experiencing static friction. And then every so often, the force of the two continents trying to slide against each other will overcome static friction and you'll get a sudden slip. And that's an earthquake. 
And chalk. Chalk. Well, okay, so you get the noise when you run your fingers or nails down a chalkboard, but experts at writing with chalk can draw a dotted line at high speed, which is often required when doing maths at some rate, by just the right pressure, you'll get what I now assume is the stick and slip of the chalk kind of just bouncing across the surface of the chalkboard. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I think I've seen videos of that and it never occurred to me that would be stick slip. But yeah, it must be. Feels like it. That's an amazing mathematician pro skill as well. Is that the kind of thing you practice? Oh, yeah. That's the one thing that unites professional level gymnasts and mathematicians. (laughs) Important chalk work. So the amazing thing is when you draw your finger down a clean plate, it's the skin on your finger that's vibrating backwards and forwards. Not the plate. What? Not the plates, no. Like if you ping a plate, you'll get a note, but it won't be the same note as when you drag your finger across the plate. Is that why you can get different notes out of it? You can go... Yeah, you're, you're hearing the resonating frequency of your finger skin. But in the same way as if you play a violin badly, you can get the higher harmonics. You can get different notes by drawing your finger down a plate by getting the different harmonics of your finger skin. So you're saying do not try and vibrate the plate, that's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. There is no plate. <laughs> then you'll see that it is not the plate that vibrates. It is only your finger. Yes. I've yes. got it. I've got it. Excellent. <laughs> Great. Thanks for that, Matt. That's really cleared it up for me. <laughs> but so those adverts are somewhat fraudulent in the sense that you can always get a plate to squeak so long as the plate is clean and your finger is clean. So you have to wash your hands in quite stringent soap to get rid of any of your natural oils because those natural oils that be produced with your skin reduce static friction until it's basically equal to kinetic friction. And that removes the stick-slip phenomena entirely. So really, that is not an advert for fairy liquid. That's an advert for hand soap. Yeah, exactly. What's interesting in these strange times of COVID-19 where we're all washing our hands like crazy, you actually want quite a mild soap. So I often wash my hands with dish soap because it's the only soap that's there by the sink. And that's actually really bad for your hands because it's very strong soap and it will just tear away all of your natural oils. Whereas hand soaps are often designed in a way to leave some of your natural oils behind. Those fairy liquid adverts were advertising that they were very mild, they were very gentle on your hands. Hands that do dishes are as soft as your face. You may remember that tagline. But actually, soap that treats your hands in that way is less likely to lead to a squeaky clean effect (laughs) because you've still got oils on your hands. And on your plates, I assume. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Stop rubbing your hands on your plates, you know. (laughs) That's disgusting. Thanks for listening to a podcast of Unnecessary Detail, part of the Acast Creator Network. Please tell me, Matt, you have a more straightforward stick for us. Well, I'm going to talk about stick knots. That sounds promising. Thank you. Stick is right there in the title before we even start. And well, here's the problem. So it's a matter of public record. I'm a big fan of knots, or at least the mathematical theory of knots. It's beautiful. He's got a rope. <laughs> I, brought, I brought a lot of rope and later on some straws. However, when people talk about knots, they tend to mean one of two things. You can either tie two ends of rope together. 
You've also got where people are like, ah, oh, there's a knot in this rope partway down the rope and pulled it tight. So people are like, ah, this rope is now knotted. And mathematicians tend to only care about this second type, except when it's pulled tight like this, it's kind of hard to see what's going on with that knot. So what we do is we gently loosen the knot. It looks more like a pretzel now. Mm. Now, for those of you who actually insist on seeing these things, of course, we'll take some photos. They're linked in the show notes for this podcast. So you can go and check them out. But effectively, I've just got a whole lots of bits of rope that I'm waving around and I'm claiming they're all different. If it's just a loop of string, like a just an O shape. Yep. Do, do mathematicians call that a knot? Uh, that's the unknot. <laughs> the unknot. Okay. <laughs> Trivial. And that that's just a loop. Yeah. What I love is the people who study this are called not theorists. <laughs> so interestingly, for a long time, knots were only used by like sailors and people who were doing practical things with them. And they did go through and categorize them all. I actually own a book from 1944 called the Ashley Book of Knots. And that was a collection of almost 4,000 different knots and ways to tie them and how they work. No! It's so cool. There can't be 4,000. That's insane. Hey, well, strap in. There's there's a lot of knots. So it was actually physicists, not mathematicians, who first got interested in knots. It was actually the 1800s. People like Lord Calvin, they thought that atoms might be not in kind of vortexes in the ether. Anyone got a good description of what the ether was? The luminiferous ether. That's the one. It's analogous to sound. So sound has to travel through air. If there's no air, you don't get sound. People thought the same thing was true for light because light travels as a wave. So it must be a wave in something. There must be some medium like air that light travels through the luminiferous ether. But they were wrong. They were wrong. But when they thought that was the case, they realized, hang on, we've already got a periodic table of all the elements and their properties. What if we did a periodic table of different types of knots? And if we can show they're the same, we've managed to show that atoms are just knots in the ether. And so people got obsessed with studying and analyzing knots in the 1800s because they thought that's what everything around us was. It turns out they were wrong. There was then like laser interferometers showed us that, you know, even though the Earth is moving through space, the speed of light is the same in every direction and the theory was disbanded. But we still use the same terminology and notation and mathematics that was originally used when they thought they were going to have the periodic table made of knots. So when I wave around a knot and I say, oh, this is the 7-2 knot or something, I'm harking back to 19th century physicists who thought this would explain all matter. But it does not. But it does not. That's really cool, though. So there is there a, there's a periodic table of knots. Yeah. And the way that they decided to classify them was if you've got a knot, you try and put it down with the fewest points where it crosses itself. So it can take a while to work out what that is, but we call it the minimum crossing number. They, you know, you arrange your knot and you're like, OK, there's no way you can put this knot down with fewer than four crossings or something like that. And then they went through and did this massive table. So there's only one knot that has a minimum crossing number of three. There's only one at four, two at five, three at six. And then you get more and more very, very quickly. 
By the time you get up to a minimum crossing number of nine crossings, there are 49 distinct knots. And if you were to list out all of them up to 16 crossings or fewer, there are over 1.7 million possible knots. So there's just wow. an insane number of them. So the 4,000 in your book is massively underpowering the number of possible knots. They missed loads. Wow. <laughs> and I guess they were looking at practical ones. And since then, in the 90s, they did slightly update that book with new knots or ones they realized were duplicates. It was actually the same knot, but with different names and different ways of tying it. So occasionally they update that, but that's still like the practical end of knots. Mathematicians, however, were like, how far can we abstract this? Or how far can we change our starting assumptions? So in mathematics, you'd start with one set of assumptions, like we're going to have a rope, we're going to join the ends together, we're going to investigate the ways that that can be tangled. And then you're like, well, what if... Instead of a rope, what if these were all sticks? Honestly, Matt, I think you took longer to get to sticks than I did. Anyway, go on. Uh, the important thing was I said it at the beginning and then moved on. <laughs> so, so I've made a stick knot. I've made it out of straws. Whoa! Thank you. I've got six ah. straws. So six is the fewest number of straws that you can arrange in a knot. So there's no way I can untangle this back out into a loop. But yet... You don't have to bend the straws to make the knot in the first place. So six is the smallest stick number. Okay, I'm going to try and describe it. It looks like two coat hangers copulating. <laughs> okay, maybe. Or it's sort of like a very straight-edged version of the Boy Scout Girl Guide ah. trefoil. Well, it is, it is a trefoil. So full marks to uh, Arnie. There you go. Nice. Yeah. So this is a trefoil, which is the most simple knot. It's got a minimum crossing number of three. And this is the most simple stick knot. It requires six sticks to make um, one of these. To be clear, you're not allowed to flex the sticks at all. The sticks have to be straight. You are not allowed to flex the sticks. So I have used straws, which are a bit bendy, but you could make this out of like welded straight metal sticks and you would get this knot. Well, this is the only knot you can get with six. If you had seven sticks at your disposal, so if I add one more straw, there's still only one possible knot I could do, but it's different to this one, oh. which would be nice. If I had eight sticks then suddenly there are five different knots I can make. And actually with eight sticks, you can make all the knots which had a minimum crossing number of five or six. And so as soon as mathematicians started playing with stick knots, they were like, how do we relate the stick number of a knot to its minimum crossing number? Mm -hmm. And it turns out, we don't know yet. <laughs> There's still an open part of mathematics. We have no idea. Well, we've got some ideas, but there's no way to take a knot from its number of crossings and turn it into the number of sticks you would need to make that knot. We have got upper and lower bounds, if you'd like to hear those. Yes. Good. I was going to tell you anyway. So uh, the number of sticks you need is definitely less than one and a half times one more than the crossing number of the knot. And it's definitely more than half of seven plus the square root of eight times the crossing number plus one. That's ridiculous. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> it's ridiculous. And, what? And, and what I love is that ridiculous a half of a thing plus a big square root. If anyone recognizes that or sounds vaguely familiar, it's from the quadratic formula for solving a quadratic. 
Oh, minus b plus or minus the square root of a squared plus b squared. That's the one. Yeah. And it's a bit like thinking, well, each of the sticks can't cross the ones next to them. So that's the number of sticks minus three. And each of those can cross the number minus four. And you multiply them together to get the total number of crossings. And you end up with a quadratic. And then when you solve that, that's where you get the lower bound. And a lot of this was only discovered within the last 10 years. So this is still, I mean, all of knot theory is still an open area of research, but stick knots particularly, there's a lot we don't know about them. You know, I'm uh, all for blue skies research. You know, a lot of discoveries are made before an application is known. That's great to hear, Steve. And I assume it means there'll be no further questions. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's a big book coming, you know. I just oh. can't see how this could possibly be applicable anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Except possibly in crafting with my toddler yes well i'm sorry honey we've only got six sticks yeah. there's only one possible way we could put these together bend the damn stick i'd been keeping these multicolored straws for <laughs> ages and i was like yes i can use them to make stick knots so there you go um no okay so there are some practical applications so in terms of when you'd actually have something that's knotted but is made of sticks if you've got long chain polymers or you know uh, molecules they are effectively made up of rigid links that can then hinge at the joints. I'm not a chemist, but go with me. And some of these long chain molecules can form loops. And if they're knotted loops or tangled loops, it changes the chemical properties. And so a chemical that's in a tangled closed loop is a stick knot. However, the only one we've ever observed happening was only a trefoil, which is the most boring knot. That's not the unknot. And it had loads of molecules to spare. By my count, just looking at the molecule, I reckon it had about 18 sticks worth. So that's like three times as many. So it's not actually used yet, but hypothetically in the future, potentially it might be useful. And finally, I did use a stick knot in my everyday life, a practical application, or rather, my friend Sabetta did. Yeah, well, no one can describe your life as as normal, Matt. So uh, this is this had better be a good application. Yeah, that that burn was both swift and accurate. So um, for a long time, I wanted to work out if on the tube, so the underground subway in London, if there's a path you can follow which will be a closed knot as you go around because the tube lines go above and below each other. And when I was working it out with some mathematician friends of mine, Sabetta, she realized that a lot of the tube lines are in different layers because when they were divvying up the contracts originally, they're like, okay, you do the northern line, you get this depth. Uh, you're doing the Piccadilly line, you get that depth. And then the stations are kind of where you go up and down between the layers. And she's like, that sounds like a stick knot. So she used her knowledge of stick oh. knots to work out a journey we could follow around the London Underground, which was a knotted path. And so uh, QED stick knots are useful. Thank you very much. <laughs> I take your snickering as agreement. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hananani, hit us with your stick. <laughs> <laughs> You've been waiting this whole episode to say that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say rhythm stick, but you're not doing anything about music. so Yeah, I'm not doing anything about music, unfortunately. Mm. I'm doing stuff about maths. What? Whoa. I'm trying to take over maths spot because I have got really interested in how mathematics sticks in the brain of a child because I'm spending a lot of time with my three-year-old and I'm watching her every day get to grips with language and maths and learning all of the uh, women who have been to space. <laughs> she doesn't yet know that men go to space. This is something I have kept from her. When she finds out about Buzz Aldrin, she is going to be pissed off. <laughs> but at the moment, she thinks Sally Ride and Valentina Cherikova are the bomb. But it's really interesting to spend time with her and watch her learning and developing. And the thing that I have seen her do recently is learn maths. And it's absolutely mind-blowing for me because I can't remember learning maths. Like, Matt, Steve, can you remember what it was like to first understand numbers? No. It, it happens before you consciously know that you don't know things, right? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I feel like that's that's my life every day. <laughs> <sighs> every day you're like, I'm discovering so much. Some more maths now makes sense. But I absolutely, you're right. I cannot say the first time that happened. I remember learning long division. I mean, that's a special moment in everyone's development. Yeah, I don't remember <laughs> learning how to count or anything like that. So it's really fascinating to see it from the outside. And when Matilda sees three of something on the floor, she says triangle, right? And I, well, the first time she did this, I thought this that's is good. incredible. Nice. She understands numbers because this was like a year and a half ago and she started pointing at things and saying triangle and she seems to be able to do something I wasn't expecting her to do at three which is she sees four or five of something and she immediately can say four there's four of those mummy or there's five of those which I find quite weird because I 
still expect her to go like a one, a two, a three, a four, a five, and to have to count them up. But mm. she doesn't. She can just look. Yeah. Does like the Terminator scanning. Five. Yeah. I wanted to know at what point humans start doing this because it means now she started to use maths against me. Uh, like <laughs> uh, at bedtime, we play like a couple of Disney songs or something. And she says, can I have three Disney songs? And I say, sure, you can have three Disney songs while we're getting our pajamas on. And then she says, can I have three Disney songs plus two Disney songs? And I'm like, <laughs> well, how many Disney songs is that? She says, five. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> that's great. You're trying to take the number I've said yes to, just add a couple more as if I'll not notice. And she knows that it's a total that is bigger than the first one. I'm like, this is mad. She's doing maths. I don't want to choose a favorite Festival of the Spoken Nerd offspring, <laughs> but one of them is weaponized edition. So <laughs> I think Mad- Maddie's like top of the leaderboard now. <laughs> it's fair enough. So being able to look at a number of items and immediately say how many things it is has a name. It's called subitizing. Subitizing. Yeah. Can you spell that? Uh, S-U-B-I-T-I-S-I-N-G. Right. So I thought I would try this out on you, Matt and Steve. I'm now going to hold up some pieces of paper that have a number of dots on them. Oh, boy. Okay. God, pressure's on. Flipping it. You tell me exactly how many dots there are instantly. Go. Six. Six. Okay. I feel like Matt was faster, but uh, it might be my bias. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, I'll hold this one a bit further back. How many dots on this page? Ten. Nine. Ah, it's ten. (laughs) (laughs) See, that was harder, right? That was harder. Yeah. Did anyone else do 442 or was that just me? Oh, that's interesting. What you mentally split them, Matt? Yes, I I, I grouped the four on the right, uh-huh. and then the four on the top left, and uh-huh. then four four, and then two at the bottom. So you've got a technique. This is what's really interesting because you subitized into two fours and a two. Yeah. So most adults can subitize six or seven as a maximum. Hmm. Beyond that, like I tested you with just then, you got six straight away, but 10, you have to subdivide it or count them. I I struggle with six. I split it into two threes, actually. Oh, really? So even six is hard for me. See, this is very interesting because I know that you um, have been diagnosed with dyslexia, Steve, so maybe that has something to do with how you visualize numbers. Could be. I don't know. Matt, did you subdivide them or did you just go, bam, six? No, I saw two threes. Ah. Ah. So six is definitely the limit, isn't it? I feel like if I saw five, that would be, I could just supertize that. Five would be instant. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if it depends how they're drawn on the paper. Because the way you do it, to me, it looks a lot like two columns of three. I didn't do it intentionally. I did it randomly. Mm. The thing is, this is exactly the kind of test that developmental psychologists have done on small children Mm -hmm. to find out about when they learn about numbers. And it has come up with some really interesting results, which is the unnecessary detail that I wanted to go into about how children get to groups with numbers. So developmental psychologists have known already for about 30 years that children are born with a sense of of number already. Uh, So they've measured the focus time of babies looking at pictures of dots, just like I made you do there. Basically, you've done what a small child could do. Congratulations. Thank you very much. (laughs) Achieved. And, And when they change the number of dots, 
the focus time changes for the infant, which means it's something novel and it's something new and they're working it out. So that's how they measure the attention of an infant. Do they focus on something for longer? And if it's novel and they focus on something for longer, it means they're kind of processing, they're working out, yes, I can tell the difference between that having more dots than this thing. And what I find so interesting is there have been more recent studies that shows that being able to count one, two, three, four, five, that is not the best indicator of future mathematical ability. So the fact that Matilda can count is irrelevant. The fact that she can see a number of things and say, but whatever, three things is much more interesting. Ah, so the supertizing is more important than the counting. Yes, because a lot of parents are like, oh my gosh, my child can count to goodness knows how many. That's absolutely fine. But that's basically a nursery rhyme. It's just rote learning. Yeah, it's, it's rote learning. It's fun and it's good language development. It's all good stuff. But at the point where it actually means something, that's where it gets interesting. Developmental psychologists have known for 30 years that children are born with a sense of number because they've tested babies inside the womb what wow so i can say i've been doing math since before i was born 100 <laughs> percent. yeah that that's is great absolutely ah. yeah it seems like there are two different cognitive systems going on inside your brain one that deals with small numbers and one that deals with big numbers and the one that deals with small numbers counting is not as relevant as the one that deals with big numbers when you're talking about future mathematical ability as an adult. And this I found so interesting. And a developmental psychologist called Joe Van Herrigan has studied kids with neurodevelopmental disorders. And this is how they know that there are two different cognitive systems for different sizes of numbers, right? So she studied two different groups of kids with different developmental disorders. One group of kids was really good at small numbers when they were infants, really good at the ones and the twos and the threes. And the other group was much better at distinguishing between big numbers, like, is this number of dots bigger than this number of dots? But they were not so good at telling the difference between one, two and three. So there's two different developmental disorders that have caused two different mathematical abilities in early infancy. And then they also looked at adults with the same developmental disorders and discovered that the ones who were really bad at small numbers, but really good at comparative sizes of bigger numbers, are the ones who had much better mathematical ability in adulthood. And we're talking about things like being able to do mathematical processes and add up things in a shop. Uh, whereas the children who were better at low numbers, but absolutely had no clue about the bigger numbers, that didn't help their later mathematical ability. They were still very poor at mathematics when they grew up. That's interesting because professional mathematicians are famously bad at arithmetic. Yes! Because mathematicians who are good at arithmetic, they're uh, traditionally called um, accountants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The practical end of the mathematical scale. Yeah. 
That's enough sticky details for one episode. And if one thing is going to stick with you, it should be, we appreciate you listening. <laughs> That's right. Uh, stick around and head to festivalofthespokennerd.com slash podcast for the show notes. I've put some links to more about subitizing and Joe Van Herigen's research into preschool and numeracy if you want to look that up. I've also got photographs of the stick knots that I was talking about, despite our vivid descriptions. There's also the Ashley Book of Knots and the YouTube videos I made with Sabetta and Henry, the All the Stations folks. We were trying to find knots on the London Underground. And that advert, the fairy liquid one with the net new, and we've got a link to that as well. Yes, we have more links than you can shake a stick at. Or indeed, than you can supertize. <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, please subscribe on your podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they come out. And if you want to get in touch about anything to do with the podcast, you can find us on social media, for example, at FOTSN on Twitter or Festival of the Spoken Nerd on Facebook and Instagram. And we're all available on social media individually as well. Just put our names into your browser, to be honest. If you want to email us, the address is podcast at festivalofthespokennerd.com. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. A podcast of unnecessary detail is made by Festival of the Spoken Nerd. That's Helen Arney, Steve Mould and Matt Parker. With music by Howard Carter, designed by Adam Robinson and our brilliant producer is John Harvey. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.